The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for being here tonight. And a special welcome. Special welcome to anybody who's new tonight. Feel free to come up at the end and introduce yourself. And Laura is here, our program host. If you have any questions, you can check in with her at the end. So last week I uh, thought it'd be nice, after being gone for a while, to take a little time and, in a more specific way, think, reflect on what this awareness practice is, because we hear a lot of different things, and it's easy to get confused. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. And a lot of times as a defense, when things are challenging for us, we complicate it. It's like because we assume if we're doing the right thing, it should be easy. But it might be the other way around. When we're doing it right, we might realize more and more how challenging it actually is to be aware. And it's interesting in this tradition, the word awareness doesn't really have an equivalent in the discourses of the Buddha. I mean, there's a word for consciousness, there's a word for mindfulness. But we often use this word awareness as a sort of a word that represents, that sort of points to a practice. So a number of wholesome qualities of mind coming together and when in balance, when they have some momentum, then the mind, the heart is able to understand, see things as they are. And so one way the Buddha talked about this is in terms of what are called the five faculties. And you can think of it as an engine of awakening. And these five qualities of mind, you're going to recognize these are very, not ordinary, but recognizable qualities of our mind. When they come together in balance with some momentum, this is, the, this is what we mean by awareness or awareness practice, the coming together of these wholesome qualities of mind. And it really begins with the first quality of faith. Because otherwise, and you'll notice this, I'm sure many of us know this experience when we're sitting, especially if you've been sitting for a while, it's easy just to go through the motions. But we need to activate some kind of confidence or faith that the practice has a purpose. We're not just here. You know, sometimes, and and there's some skill to this point of view, we're like a snow globe, you know, that's gotten shook up in the snow. Some of, um, hopefully you all know this image, right? Get a little snow globe when you're four-year-old, shake it off, there's a lot of glitter floating around. If you leave it alone, things settle. And this is a really passive metaphor for meditation practice. Like if I just sit there enough, the mind's going to settle down. And to some degree that's true, but we can sit there for a while and the mind can get stirred up. Right? It's like, actually there's no better situation to get a real head of steam for obsessive thinking than to sit in meditation. I mean, in an outward sense, it's like nobody around, no distractions. I can really worry. I can really get caught up in planning and judging. I can like, 
I've seen this in my mind at times where it's like, I, my mind gets so clear about all the things I don't like about a particular person or all the things you know that I think should be done in the world or all the things that if I had, I'd be happy. I, I always tell this as a joke, but a good friend of mine, somebody who's done a lot of practice, and we were riding home after a retreat. This is a long time ago in the 90s. And, and he confessed to me that, you know, that the obsession that he had is during the retreat. It was just a nine-day, ten-day retreat. He said, I, my mind just had to figure out the top 20 movies of all time <laughs> in the correct order. And it's, I'm sure you've seen that in, our, in your mind at times where it's almost like you get a hold of something and the mind can't let it go. It just seems so important to figure out what, what is the answer to that. It just won't let it go. So when, you know, to shift out of the normal patterns that our mind repeats, this samsaric, these circles of suffering, cycles of suffering, worrying, planning, wanting, not wanting, judging. The mind has to have something that breaks those cycles, and we call that faith or confidence. And it's confidence that the practice of awareness is relevant to what is important, happiness or the ending the releasing of stress. Everybody cares about that, but that doesn't mean we're aware that we care about it or that we have some sense that there's something to do about it. A lot of complacency, a lot of sort of either not meditating or you know, meditating but not meditating, <laughs> right? Sort of we go through the motions, but we're not really interested. We're not really sort of honest with ourselves, like what am I doing? Oh, the fact is I don't have a clue. Well, maybe I should ask a question or maybe I should read something or maybe I should reflect on what I've heard before so that I'm not just spacing out, but I'm actually doing something with my mind during this time that I've set aside. So this is where faith comes in. It sort of breaks the habit pattern. It breaks the momentum of habit and the faith Right? It's like a seed that says, you know, I'm not positive, but I think there that I'm not helpless, and I think that there's a way toward release, toward happiness, toward being this heart, this mind and body being more free from the weight we often experience in life. Now, just to sort of do a little experiment. You could imagine a young person, like a 18-year-old, coming up to you and asking you, you know, is there a way? You know, like, the world's a crazy place. Have you noticed? So you're a little older than me, or you're a lot older than me, and you've been doing this thing, right? This Buddhist awareness thing for a while. So is there a way? Has the work you've done, the practice you've done, been of value? If so, what did you do, and what's the value you've gotten from it? Now, can we respond? Because that really would be an expression of confidence. Because it's not confidence that, well, you know, I've, the Dalai Lama's been in town five times, and I've gone each time, and, you know, I felt really inspired. 
that's what in the tradition is sometimes called a borrowed faith because you know so many other people think this person's special. Well, I think that person's special too then. And we, you know, the person says this, the Dalai Lama says this, or this teacher says that. And we're sort of holding on partly because of their charisma, partly because culturally this person is elevated. So we sort of want to believe it. We find it useful to believe in what they're saying. But that's a very fragile kind of confidence and faith. What do we know in our own experience of working with the reality of having a mind, having a heart, and understanding that terrain. Right? As a Saida Utejaniya, this person I've studied with, this Burmese monk and teacher, meditation teacher, I really like how he talks about wisdom, you know, defining wisdom in part as that quality or that aspect of the mind that's interested in causes, like how this has come to be. What were the supporting causes that have led to my mind being all tied up in a knot? Or what what were the causes that have led to my mind, my heart, being more released? So to the degree we've begun to understand about the causes, both from listening to teachers, then reflecting on what they've said, and then realizing something directly in our own mind, in our own heart, then we have confidence, like, oh my God, there is a training I can undertake. There is a way, there is a path. This Buddha probably knew something, right? He had something to say that even today, 2,500 years later, is relevant. He understood something about the mind that wasn't specific to his time and place, to his mind, but was really universal to anybody who has a mind, has a heart, understands the terrain that when hearing the teachings, when reflecting on what the Buddha said or what a wise person has said, reflecting on it enough so that in the laboratory of our own present moment experience, we begin to see directly what are the causes for getting tied up in a knot, getting stressed out, getting burdened by the activity of the mind, and what are the causes for the release of that weight, the release of that entanglement, then there's a sense of independence, like, oh yeah, there is a way. I can do this all the time. I mean, I I distinctly remember moments in my practice, both in the very early days, months of my practice, and then throughout the many years of my practice now, of this, uh, just this sort of burst of confidence. And it really goes like that. Oh my God, there is a way. There's something to do in this life other than earn a lot of money so I have, I can retire or, you know, so I can be somewhere where nobody bothers me. Which, by the way, doesn't really exist. <laughs> you know, even if you're, I was, some of you know, I was on retreat for a number of weeks out uh, at Steve Armstrong and Kamala Master's place that they've developed this Dharma sanctuary on Maui, really amazing place to practice. You know, in some ways, a perfect place to do a retreat. Really beautiful Maui, if you haven't been on the Hawaiian Islands, very soft energy, really softening for the mind and body in many ways. But 
high up away from the touristy areas, really secluded, beautiful, spacious view of the islands, kind of opens the mind naturally. Hardly anybody was here. I hardly, for the first couple of weeks, didn't see anybody because it was just a few people and they kind of kept to themselves. And even there, though, there the mind finds things that aren't perfect, right? The wild turkeys poop on the deck, you know. You've got to be careful when you open the door at night because cockroaches from outside will come inside. You know, sometimes the sunshine is a little irritating, you know. <laughs> and sometimes when it's really cloudy, it's a little cool, especially in the morning. You've got to put your jacket on, you know. You walk on the grass and your feet get wet. There's dew in the morning on the grass. I mean, I being kind of an aversive type, I could go on and on and on. <laughs> about, and I even started to find some bird calls because there were a lot of birds around. They're really irritating. <laughs> some of you, like Franz here, who have done a lot of practice in Asia, know like the birds are noisy. You think oh, I'm out of the city? They just go on and on. So there's no place that's perfect. And one of the things about having a deeper glimpse of the path, whether it's just from hearing somebody talk about it or from your own reflecting on what somebody like the Buddha has said or your own insight, like seeing that what they said is true in this moment, in your own mind, in your own experience, it's true. So you become somewhat independent. Now you know it's true. No, even if... You read later that the Buddha said, no, 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 that's not that way. You would have to disagree. No, I have actually seen it in my own experience a number of times. This is true for me in my experience. This leads to suffering or this leads to the release of stress in my mind. I've seen it. I've done you know, the experiment where I can reproduce it. Like when I do it this way, when I think in this way or when I cultivate my mind in this way, think it really tight and entangled. When I relate to my mind in this way, relate to experience in this way, things really open up, free up, lighten up. Right? We, that confidence is very solid. It's something we can bank on. And without that confidence, and of course it's developing, without some degree of confidence, the mind isn't willing, able to engage the second faculty, which is energy, this energy of persistence, willing to show up and take responsibility for our mind, right? Just like a gardener takes responsibility for the causes and conditions in that garden, you know, whether the soil is fertile, whether there are pests, whether there are good seeds, enough sun, enough water, people leaving it alone, animals leaving leaving it alone. In the same way, when we realize that there's a way, then there's a very natural willingness to take responsibility and to persist. We, we're still learning, but we're persisting like with the sense we have of what the causes are for good things happening. We persist in developing and maintaining those qualities in the mind, right? Because we have a sense from our own investigation that these are skillful qualities. They lead to wholesome states, happy states, pleasant states, release states, and these qualities don't. So I abandon those. I prevent them from dominating my mind, from my mind getting caught up. 
because I've been burnt enough times to know that this isn't the way. Worrying is not the way to happiness. Stinginess is not the way to happiness. Hate, even self-hate, is not the way to happiness. Wanting the moment to be different than it is doesn't lead to happiness. It leads to being tight. Wanting things to be different is already an experience of being tight. Rejecting the present moment, even if it's really unpleasant, rejecting it, hating it, is tight. So when we get it, then we're willing to persist. doesn't mean we know perfectly well, so we're still learning, but we're, we're persisting at what we think we know. So this is the sort of experimentation. And then because we're tracking experiences, really leads us to the second. Right? Part of what we're persisting at is having a mind that can actually connect to the present moment. Because part of the, what faith is revealing to us is there's really no change unless the mind is connected. We'll wander, like and the Buddha does such a good job at painting a very scary picture of how long human beings can wander in you know patterns and mind states that don't go anywhere. All they do is cause the body-mind to get tight. And there's some very provocative images about how long that is. On the last day before we flew home, we went to the beach and just swam for an hour or so. And we were on this beach and this big sea turtle came up. I mean, it was huge and just kind of hung around. I mean, a lot of people were on the beach that day, just sort of hung around in shallow water for like 20, 30 minutes. It was just there. We could be within inches of it. You had to be careful, actually, not to trip over it, just sort of floating, sometimes coming to the surface, just sort of sitting in the water. And uh, there's one simile the Buddha used about a big turtle like that. He said, if there were, you know, a hoop in the middle of the ocean just floating there, and once there's one turtle in all the great oceans on the planet, and once every hundred years that one turtle poked its head out of the water, right? The odds of that person, or that turtle rather, (coughs) putting its head through the hoop, like that's how rare it is to have this opportunity to step outside of these habits, right? Where we're a normal being who is experiencing some stress, but because we don't have, we haven't had instruction, we haven't thought about these instructions, we haven't undertaken any practice, what we do about the stress that we experience is exactly what perpetuates the stress. Again, that in Buddhism is called samsara. We just keep doing the same thing, getting the same results. But if we're lucky, fortunate enough to you know, be privileged enough, healthy enough, fortunate enough to hear some good teachings, think about those teachings so that we can work with them in our own experience, and see that they're true, and really have a sense of what to do with this life, what to do with this mind, that's a pretty rare event. And it's pretty easy for us to understand when we look at our friends, when we sense how much of the world is tied up in poverty, in war, being oppressed because of race or some other 
sort of condition that that person is experiencing, and they just don't have the good fortune to be reflective about the causes for suffering and stress. They're just trying to survive, just trying to raise their kids, just trying to get by. Right? That immediate, you know, and then there's the people who have what we would normally say good fortune. They're beautiful, they're, you know, smart, they're fort lucky, they, you know, good job, money, whatever. And so they don't have any incentive to be reflective. They're just thinking, why bother? I'm, I'm having a good time. And when you think about those two groups, people who are oppressed, challenged, overwhelmed by circumstance, people who have it pretty easy, that have no incentive, no interest in being reflective, that takes care of the great majority of people on the planet right now. So when we're in that sort of narrow space and bump into these teachings and get interested in these teachings, and we start having some faith, oh yeah, there is something to cultivate. We feel that energy of persistence, and we channel it toward what? We channel it toward mindfulness, which is the third quality. Because there's this energy, I want to do something. I just don't want to go through the motions in this life. So, And we don't know much, but we know that distraction isn't the way. Just acting out my habits isn't the way. And then we get some teachings, we reflect, and they make a lot of sense. Present moment awareness is a very simple but powerful change agent in a human mind. I think it's fair to say, from my own experience, many of you could probably say the same thing from your own experience, they have, we have not come across anything more powerful than present continuity of present moment awareness. It is so transforming because delusion can't hold up. The force of habit is no match. It doesn't matter how ancient and deep that habit is. It's no match for the continuity of present moment awareness. Non-judging, an awareness not mediated, not under the spell of concept. So it's just seeing things, sound is sound, sight is sight, thought is just thought, emotion just emotion, sensation just sensation. Sometimes uh, Dharma teachers, Buddhist Dharma teachers, will say this is seeing reality. Right? Instead of seeing things in terms of our thoughts about things, we're seeing things in a more elemental way. And when we're seeing experience the activity of the mind and body. This is really the definition of mindfulness, is tracking present moment experience, which means, and this is what I talked about last week. For those of you who weren't here, you can listen to the talk online about being real, seeing things as they are, means seeing things in terms of these six things, the activity of the mind and the activity of the body. The activity of the body are just the five physical senses seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and sensation, touches, right? Knowing that just as they are and knowing the activity of mind as activity of mind. Thoughts are just thoughts, sort of mental images, just, right? Because we think sometimes an image 
Sometimes we think in language, sort of depends on the particular person at a particular moment. But whether it's an image or in word, that's just concept, being known. And if there's an emotional charge with the thought, that's just a feeling, an emotional feeling being felt. It's just that being known. Mental activity being known. Physical activity of the five physical senses being known. And that's what mindfulness is. It's tracking that. And the hard part about mindfulness and why we need persistence, the energy of persistence is we want to think about things. Even if we have a moment of really the mind, the knowing mind, connecting with sensation. Oh, aching is being known or hearing is being known or thought being known. Then immediately the habit, the force of a habit is going to want to, it has some ideas about what was just being known. And we then, the mind then loses mindfulness. It loses the reality that this is just something being known. And we get under the spell, we get what's called lost in thought, which is the real disease of ordinary human beings. Most of the time we're lost in thought, meaning the mind is not aware that that's just a thought being known. And that's one skillful means that we, a lot of us, use sometimes. We just say that in the mind. Oh, that's just a thought being known. Like when we catch, when we're sensing that we're lost in thought, under the spell, feeling the momentum to just keep thinking, keep proliferating, we might intervene by just saying, this is thought being known. And it feels like this. So we notice the charge that goes with it. So we're not confused by it. That's just the charge being felt. And those are just thoughts being thought, being known. And it's just this. It's just like this now. And that can pop, not necessarily stop the thinking, but pop, uh, cause the letting go of the identification with the thought. Right. So now the mind isn't under the spell. And this really starts to point to this fourth quality. So, so far we have confidence, there's something we can do with the mind. There's a training we can undertake and we have some sense it leads to what is good, to a sense of, to an experience of freedom from stress, from being entangled, from feeling burdened by life. And so we're willing to persist. We're developing the mind that can connect with the present moment. And then mindfulness is, with that connection, is sustaining it. This is the activity of the mind being known. This is the activity of the body being known. It's just this being known. Knowing the mind and body. That's what mindfulness is in a more technical sense. And the continuity of mindfulness can shift the mind into what in Buddhism we call samadhi. The stability of awareness. And when you fall into this place, or move in the direction of samadhi, the stability of awareness, you feel it. It's like the mind has a kind of solidity, the mind, or you could say heart, has a kind of solidity, integrity, unflappableness. And the interesting thing, it's not. it may in some ways feel detached, but when you investigate, when you look at that experience, you'll see that the mind is right in the middle. It's not really 
somewhere else. It's just not afraid to be to be in the middle. It's not a it's because the mind has its own integrity, it can just let the activity of the mind and body be what it is. Because it's not confused. So this is a samadhi that's not so much about secluding the mind from experience, but because of the continuity of mindful awareness, knowing the activity of the mind and body is just what it is. Seeing is being known. Hearing is being known. Touching sensation is just being known. Thoughts are just being known. Just this being known. Because of the continuity the samadhi, the stability of mind, has this quality of equanimity or unflappableness, not shook by what's coming and going. And that mind is able to observe what's coming and going. So it allows for insight to arise, wisdom to develop, right? because that mind can be right in the middle but not involved, not dependent, on the thought, the emotion, the sight, the sound, the sensations, whether there's pain in the knee or the body feels comfortable, it's not pushed around by what's coming and going in the body and mind. And so it's able to observe the activity of the mind and body. And what does it see? Well, what it sees is what we mean by wisdom. It sees the way that it is. It sees that everything is coming and going this thing we call me or my life or reality is a changing, never-ending process of things coming and going. Whether we're talking about sight or sound or thought or sensation or any aspect of our experience is a flow, a changing river of body and mind. And it's impersonal, and any identification, any attachment is weightful, is heavy, is stressful. This is what's revealed. But the mind can't see this without stability of awareness. We can understand it intellectually. I'm assuming most of you kind of get that things are changing, that what's coming and going is impersonal, that when I get attached, take things personally, it hurts, it gets tight in my mind, in my body. We get this. But still it seems appropriate for me to get attached to my partner or to get attached to being healthy or you know, whatever we're, we cling to. It just seems to make sense to want something to happen, to want something to go away. But when we see that what's playing out is so uh, impersonal, it's natural, it arises, it's happening because of so many different causes and conditions, It just dawns on the heart to let go. This is really the fruit of the deepening of insight or the deepening of wisdom. The mind, the heart lets go. What does it let go of? It lets go of attachment and grasping and struggling to control what can't be controlled, struggling to judge what doesn't need to be judged, letting go of what doesn't, we, you know, fear, you know, often is not helpful. So let's go of the fear that isn't helpful. Wanting is usually not helpful. So let's go of the unnecessary wanting. Because it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't lead to happiness. It just causes things to get tight. Now we could tell ourselves for a hundred years to let go, but we won't let go 
But when we see the changing and impersonal and stressful nature of experience, letting go happens. Nobody has to tell us to let go. The heart lets go. Right? The already we've let go of so much in life, right? It's like when some of you are in you know, intimate relationships, married or have a partner. And, you know, at times, maybe for the first couple partners, you know, you try to make that person the way you wanted your partner to be. But eventually it gets burnt out of us because it's so painful to have a partner and to want that person to be a particular way. And the way, you know, if you're fortunate, we we bump into moments where we're just letting the partner be the way that they are. And the relationship works so well. It's just so interesting, you know, how this wisdom of letting go happens. Those of you who are who have or are raising kids, you've learned this, right? Maybe you didn't learn it when they were five years old or 13 years old, but by the time they're 45 or 55, Those of you who have older kids, you've learned to let go of trying, wanting, needing your kid to be a particular way because it's so painful. Can you imagine like running into a friend who's 75 still wanting their 50-year-old son or daughter, you know, to sort of do what they think is right to do? I mean, you would think, oh, honey, haven't you gotten it? They're their own person. They're doing their own thing here. Let go. Right? It'd be so obvious to an outsider, but not so much. Some you know, in moments for us, it's not obvious. So this is what wisdom reveals, or this is the fruit of wisdom, really, the letting go. It's not something that somebody does. It's something that naturally happens when the heart, when the mind really understands in a deeper way. This is like the incremental insight understands in a deeper way that grasping attachment doesn't help anybody. It is the cause for suffering, as the Buddha says. Attachment, grasping, clinging, being identified, taking things to be self or mine or personal that are, in fact, the activity of nature. Causes and conditions that are naturally, conditionally playing themselves out. And when the mind sees this clearly enough, because of the stability of awareness, then the heart lets go. And the stability of awareness is there because the mind valued connecting with things as they are, the activity of the mind, the activity of the body. Mindful awareness of the way it is. Seeing is just seeing being known. Hearing a sound is just hearing being known. Feeling sensation in the body is just touching being known, a sensation being known. Even the most sublime thought or the most disturbing, disgusting thought is just a thought being known. And if there's a charge with that thought, that's just a charge being known, an emotional charge being known. This is mindfulness. And we can't get that continuity of mindfulness without that persistence. Like, I don't care how wild my mind is, how strong the habit towards denial and distraction and fantasy or whatever is, 
I know that that's not the way to happiness. So I don't care if I'm the most distracted, the the most you know dull-minded human being that has ever lived. We all have an incentive to persist at cultivating the continuity of mindfulness. Because what's the alternative? Does anybody really think that staying distracted or in denial leads to happiness? Or just sort of being on autopilot, living out our habit energies? I don't think anybody really thinks. But some of us in moments think that, yeah, I don't think it's going to lead to happiness, but I don't know what else to do with my mind. So I'm just going to go along with the cultural flow of consuming things and being interested in entertainments. So people submit to habit energy not because they think it leads to happiness. They just don't know a better thing to do. And that's where faith comes in. However faint it might be, right? and it always begins as something very faint, and it's not going to get less faint unless we take however faint the confidence or faith is and we persist at something. We sort of operationalize our confidence and we do something about, even if we've never done any practice but we read one thing or a friend told us one thing, it kind of made us curious. Like for me, you know, I got obsessed with death when I was 23. I I broke up from someone I was going out with for about four years. (laughs) And it's like I came out of a cloud because... Everything in my life, besides just you know doing the things you had to do as a student and then as a somebody who had a job, you know, was about the relationship. And then that ended, and it was like, oh yeah, I'm a human being, and I realized I didn't have a clue, and in particular, I didn't have a clue about the most important thing, which is I was born, and someday I'm going to die. And I got obsessed about that, and it's like just like the Buddha said, it's like. I just wondered as I sort of realized the predicament of being a human being, does anybody know what to do with this human life given that you're born and then you die? And so I started to look around and I very quickly came upon the teachings of the Buddha and they made sense. But just it was just like on an intellectual level. It's like, one, he was addressing the relevant issue that it's not easy being a human being. I was like, someone was actually normalizing my experience of, feeling burdened, even though I was a pretty privileged human being, it's like I felt pretty burdened having a mind and body and having a life. That was not easy for me. And, and I, was, I had it pretty well, you know, in the great scheme of things. And here was somebody talking about that. And he had something to say about death and about impermanence. And I was hooked. It was like, okay, I felt that faith energy, however superficial it was. Enough to very quickly just to start to sit there and look at the mind and take a class and read some books to follow the thread. It's like, okay, let's see if what he's pointing to makes any sense, has any positive value. I'll check it out. It's one of the most famous lines of the Buddha. Ehi pasiko, come and see, come and check it out. See if this is helpful for you. And if it is, then devote yourself to it. Not because I told you to do it, but because you've found, you've checked it out and you found that it makes sense and that when undertaken, it really supports your well-being. It leads to good things. It doesn't cause others harm. Let's check it out. 
So this is a, a useful thing, like when we talk about awareness practice or Buddhist awareness practice, we're really talking about the coming together of these five things and the coming into balance of these five things. Faith energy, the energy of persistence, of be willing to take the energy of confidence and to apply it directly in our mind. Initially, the most important thing is to cultivate a mind that connect, that can connect and eventually sustain present moment awareness to uproot the most dangerous habit, which is to be disconnected, to be unaware. Right? And then uh, we cultivate that continuity of a present moment awareness until there's some real stability where there's an awareness that's not shook or moved around by what's coming and going in our experience. That mind starts to have insight. We see, we recognize that things are changing. The mind understands what it didn't understand before. And that deepening of understanding or what we call insight, this is why we call this practice coming out of Theravada Buddhism, we often call it insight meditation or vipassana meditation. Here in the West, this is sometimes called the Vipassana or Insight Meditation Center because we're just highlighting the fruit of practice, that understanding deepens. And then that strengthens faith and confidence. And this is why it's called the engine of awakening or the engine of our practice, this awareness practice. So I want to leave it here. So we have a little bit more than 10 minutes. I'm sure some of you might have questions or your own sharings from your practice, your own experience of any of these five qualities that I've mentioned tonight. It'd be nice to hear from a few of you. Yeah, yeah, please. And if you're willing, say your name. Remember, on Sunday nights, we do record the talk. So this will be up on the Internet in case you want to modify what you say. My name is Roseanne. Thank you, Mark, for the practice tonight and the teaching. What I hear you saying makes sense. You're, we're tracking the mind Okay, uh, I'm knowing fear. I'm knowing aversion. I'm knowing um, anger, whatever. And what I'm having a hard time uh, connecting to is life doesn't happen momentarily. If you've got decisions you have to make or illnesses you have to deal with or difficult people in your life, they keep coming back. And how does that, how do you work the two together? I mean, tracking the mind is one thing, but it seems detached from the reality of the, of the, I'm, of the daily life I live. Yeah, because initially it's really hard to do both, which is why we have our formal sitting practice, because we do the best we can to have a quiet place, to sit in a comfortable way, to remove ourselves from duties and responsibilities for an hour, let's say, or half an hour, or 10 minutes, you know, whatever someone can do. We have that so-called formal practice to, de- to develop some momentum so that even then later in the day when we are in a, engaged in a conversation or we have to make a decision or we're navigating a kind of chaotic situation, there's some hope, maybe not as with as much continuity, but maybe just punctuated in moments where there's awareness, where there's a moment of the mind recognizing it's just this being known, right? And so from being attached, being caught, it's like the mind steps out of it. It's not quite right to say it this way, but 
it's easier to understand. The mind steps out of the entanglement and realizes it's just this being known. Ambiguity is being known. Fear is being known. And, and there's a little taste, maybe initially faint, but a little taste of that freedom, like being a human being with responsibilities, duties, having to make a choice, but not feeling burdened, seeing the naturalness of that human being, me, what we call me, as a natural process, being afraid, weighing the evidence, making a choice, but seeing it as just something being known. So it doesn't mean that human beings don't have choices or human beings don't experiences, experience things that are confusing, but it, it somehow removes the psychic weight from being an ordinary human being, doing this practice, developing these five qualities of mind. And it has to be experienced to be believed. It's always surprising. This is like, you can bank on this in terms of insight. It's always surprising. It doesn't matter how much intellectual faith we have, when we actually experience how liberating doing the practice is, it shocks us. Like, I mean, I can remember moments in my practice with like, oh my God, the Buddha was right. This is liberating. This removes fear. This removes need from the mind. I'm not afraid of having ice cream or, you know, it doesn't change the fact that if I fall off a cliff, the body won't be damaged, maybe even killed. It just means that the mind now understands how to hold pleasant experience and unpleasant. It knows how to relate to it. It's called non-grasping. But it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm going to walk off a cliff or I am or I'm not going to eat ice cream. It just means it knows what to do with that experience, not cling not make it more than what it is. So it actually allows us to be more intimate, more engaged with our ordinary duties and responsibilities that comes with being a human being. Thanks. Thank you, I see that. Yeah, thanks for asking that. Yeah, please, in the back. Uh, my name's David, and um, I've had a... I've, I've had a struggle, well... The good news is that I've seen a lot of these things that you've talked about help me a lot. They've, I won't even go into it, but, but they've, I've seen it for myself that this is very helpful. So I'm a little bit hooked. I'm like, this is, this is pretty cool. You know, if I just do, do the stuff you were just saying about detaching, I find that I remain calmer. And when I remain calmer, what I'm discovering is that the situation I'm in is calmer with my partner or my coworkers. I'm beginning to realize that I actually contributed to some of the drama that I used to think was all their fault. <laughs> um, Understanding causes, right? Yes, exactly. Um, but there's one part I, I, I struggle with, so it tells a lot about who I am. Um, typical workaholic, grew up, you know, hard charge, get this, achieve, that sort of thing. And you talk about letting go, but I, I'm going to go to work tomorrow, and I have an agenda, and I have goals. And I have things I want to get done. And I think this is the right way to go. And I feel like the things you've been talking about are relevant to that. But I have trouble letting go of that. I think 
What am I supposed to do? Just sit there and let everybody do exactly what they want to do? Do I have no... Do you I, see, we're only letting go of one thing, David. We're letting go of the identification. So when you feel that high-charging energy, you know, you've got your second cup of coffee down, you're on your way, you know, naturally the to-do list is there, or maybe you're already online kind of doing some communications. And then a moment of your, you know, because of your regular practice, a moment of awareness, these qualities, five qualities I've been talking about, come online. And what wisdom then, because they're there, then what wisdom sees is, oh, this is the way that it is. So that high, what you call that high charging aspect of your personality, that's seen not as David, but as the natural expresses expression of causes and conditions. Oh, of course, it's like this now. This is how it is going to work sometimes, right? And the mind has seen that. And to whatever degree that some of those motivations that are there in the mind are unskillful, then the wisdom is just going to see, oh, yeah, and then there's this stress that's associated with this attitude. Or if the motivation is skillful, like you are engaged, you are devoted, but it's really more coming from this generous spirit or this sort of curious spirit or wanting to do a good job, and so it's not tight, then you'll notice that. Like, oh yeah, this feels really alive, feels really free, feels really wholesome, really good. Right? So you'll just see that. Wisdom just sees that. It's not judging it, it's just recognizing the way that it is. Oh, this is how it is. And wisdom doesn't have, it isn't trying to make things different. Because wisdom understands the causes. It understands all it has to do is see. Because letting go happens in the same way when our hands are burning because we're touching something hot, we don't have to think through whether we should let go. All we have to do is be aware. Oh yeah, hands are burning and we let go. And it's the same thing like if there are unskillful motivations as you're getting ready for work, letting go will happen. You'll find a way to do it in a way that's not unskillful. That it's that's not unskillful, yeah. And if you can, you'll find a different job. And that will happen without you doing it. But that doesn't mean it, somebody doesn't have to sort of figure it all out. It just means that's nature too. And we're really emphasizing the awareness instead of me fixing my life. But like I said, this has to be experienced to be believed. Because that doesn't seem right. You know, if you're in a bad marriage or you're at a bad job or you want to deal with racial injustice on this planet, it seems like I have to do it. And what the Buddha is inviting us is to investigate that, right? To emphasize more being aware than being the doer. And you might find that the doing happens more skillfully, more effectively when we emphasize the awareness then we emphasize getting the to-do list done. Yeah, thanks, David. We have time for one more. Anybody else have a... Yeah, all the way over here. My name is Joel, and uh, I've been a little bit out of practice, and I'm finding a little bit of time to sit. And today I'm particularly aware of sort of my mind getting very... very um, just not not like it gets relaxed and then I can't almost engage with what I think I'm supposed to be engaging with. And that may be that I'm used to shorter sits and 
doing some more concentration practice, but I guess I don't remember how I got over this hump the last time um, when I was sitting more often. And so I'm kind of curious about how to work with the mind when you feel relaxed and it's almost as if you're, you've got a buzz or something, you're kind of not, um, you're not, uh, maybe it's like, uh, somehow you're not able to engage and yeah and maybe if you, i don't know you've talked about that kind of lightness or that forcefulness somehow that's kind of gone so so i don't am i telling you enough yeah i think so yeah and, and it's a it's, it's a sort of a sweet spot because sometimes when conditions are right the mind really wants to settle into quiet and uh generally speaking it's good to just let it settle into quiet but it's not that is not the time when we're going to do a lot of investigation or insight practice. Or the insight practice we're going to do is understand the causes for the mind settling into an even more quiet, more secluded space. But that won't last forever. And then when the mind starts to come out of that quiet, secluded space, that's a really good time to do more of the investigation of the causes for stress, the causes for release. Because when there's a lot of tranquility, suffering is suppressed. We feel pretty good. And it can be quite healing. And some people have a talent for concentration, and it's really appropriate to let that develop in your meditation practice. And we could talk more one-on-one about how to do that, Joel. But generally speaking, now of course, there are times in our practice where the tranquility is not that wholesome. We're basically tranquilizing the mind into kind of a dull or trance-like or a sleepy state. And then what we want, and it can be quite pleasant, right? Because just like a, a nap can be quite pleasant. But the thing is we're not learning anything. And it can be its own kind of trap. I mean, a relatively wholesome trap, because we are getting a good rest, but a trap in the sense that the mind gets in that, habit so that every meditation is going into this trance-like or unconscious state. And so we could practice for decades and not really learn anything. We accept how to get into a tranquil space and have a good rest, which is not a, it's not nothing, but it's a real missing of what the mind could otherwise be developing at that time. And that can be, the worst thing about that is it can be a habit that's then challenging the break because it just the mind just sort of falls into that trance state and it can be something that can happen very quickly like even within a few minutes and we're in a sort of a the zone but the mind isn't learning anything and it's not even learning how to get into a more quiet peaceful released state so we wouldn't even call it like uh, right concentration or right samadhi or sometimes people use the word jhana or a, a deeper state of absorption. It's not even that. It's just like a, a dull, disconnected, but peaceful state. But it's the peacefulness of not being connected and not being aware. So there's no learning. And that's the downside if that becomes a habit. And this happens. This is not uncommon in meditation circles that we, uh, in states or in periods in our practice, sort of get in that habit. And uh, especially sometimes when things are difficult because it's such a relief. It's like watching a good movie. We get a little distant distance from what's bothering us. And we can kind of get addicted to like another good movie 
or another, you know, or people just start sleeping a lot, like when things are stressful. It's not that they need the sleep. They may tell themselves that story. They just don't want to be who they are or they don't want to have the life that they have. So they're using sleep, like some of us use alcohol or drugs or you know, any number of things to not feel what we're feeling, to not see what we're seeing. And obviously, that doesn't have good results. It's totally understandable that we you know, use distraction to avoid what can be challenging, but we shouldn't lie to ourselves. We should tell ourselves. But that doesn't lead to anything but being more susceptible, more dependent on distraction. So it's 8.30, we need to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words and just enough time to take a breath together. Appreciating all of the women, men, all the folks before us. They had complicated, busy lives, yet they did their practice, followed these teachings from the Buddha, had some success, some insight, developed compassion and wisdom, and shared their practice. And like that, one generation after another, for so many years, it's been passed on to us. Now at this time, we're hearing these teachings. It's our turn and our complicated, busy lives to do our practice and to become part of these causes and conditions leading to greater wisdom and compassion and freedom from suffering here in our own heart and in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.